0: Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. True crime uncensored. I am the legendary Burl Bearer, Mark C.G. Boyer, fact checker, and brilliant co-host. <laughs> and yes, uh, it's Merry Christmas, for Christ's sake. How you doing? Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas. Yes, Happy Hanukkah. Oh, that's lovely. Um... Uh, we like to do the uh, annual recap of the greatest hits of uh, the past year. Take a look at the true crime world and uh, all the great adventures we've experienced. We got our, uh, our, our annual recap from, uh, of all places, Spotify on our how our cast does relative to our live broadcast, which you're listening to right now if you got a brain in your head. If you don't have a brain in your head, you don't even hear me. <laughs> mm. Where was that? Uh... The number one most downloaded and listened to podcast version of our program was a surprise. If you know Carrie Drobin down there in Arizona, call her up. Tell her, wrapped in leather, she never looked better. Yes, Carrie Drobin wins the prize of the most listened to episode of True Crime Uncensored. Yay! Yay, Carrie Drobin. And that was a show that was done years ago that I uploaded <laughs> to the podcast version, uh, Undercover in the Biker Gangs. And that was uh, quite a while ago, the most downloaded show. Uh, usually it's Kevin Sullivan. Usually comes in, you know, at the top because it was Ted Bundy crowd. You know, they're all obsessed with Ted. Right. Uh, and usually right behind that is, interestingly enough, uh, uh, Dennis Kelly, the Buddhist guy that we had on the show about 10 years ago. He must have a huge following because consistently, it's one of the most listened to programs we've ever had. And it took uh, Dennis Kelly about 35 minutes to figure out the program. Because he sounded totally confused for the first half hour of the show. (laughs) Well, we're totally confused. (laughs) And then suddenly he realized what was going on and became very humorous (laughs) for the rest of the program. And then Leonard Lee Bouchel, our our favorite former drug smuggler, uh, uh, always comes in with a high rating. Whenever he's on. Mm-hmm. I guess people get a kick out of his strange stories. And he's a strange fellow. And his book, High, Confessions of a Cannabis Addict, a very good book. Pick that one up. So as uh, we look back across the, uh, across the decades of time and uh, our, our brilliant careers, there's another good year for true crime and some real crackpots. What's your name? Uh, I think on Christmas it would be a good time to remind uh, Menagerie Taylor Green that if we Jews really do have a space laser we could use it on her ass and not on the North Pole. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't believe that. She's actually telling people the Jews have a space laser that we're going to use on the North Pole to melt it because Jews hate Christmas. Sounds right to me. Yeah, Bill Bro would love to hear you say that. <laughs> He's speaking Excuse of Bill Burr. I, um,
1: I I just have a a comment.
0: You just have this. a what?
1: Just a, a simple comment. Yeah. The the period of time, you know, Hanukkah and Christmas, is one of the biggest. Year, points in the year for sales. Yeah. Now, wouldn't that be something Jews would want?
0: Yes. People ask me, how do Jews celebrate Christmas? And I tell them the truth. We dance around the cash register, seeing what a friend we have in Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that horrifying?
1: I love that. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's the SNL sketch, you know, um, uh, Christmas for the Jews. Well, I haven't seen that one. Oh, it's uh, Claymation. It's very cute. It's done as... uh, the uh, the Supremes.
0: Which one?
1: Uh, Christmas for the Jews, where you know it's Christmas and they uh, the Jews go out to Is the that, Chinese. Uh, uh, uh Trey and uh, Matt. No, no, this is SNL. It was. Um, oh, oh, very funny. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't
0: know that one. What do the Jews do on Christmas? Presents? Well, they go
1: to the Chinese restaurant, right, of course, yeah. and then they go to a movie. No one else is there.
0: That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's what we always did. <laughs> Chinese restaurant, and a movie. Yes. That's yeah. That's one of the old traditions dating back to when the old dragged the Yule log into the synagogue. By the way, <laughs> even though I'm a goy, right, yeah. I, I would prefer Chinese food on Christmas day to any other food. I love Chinese food. Yeah, so do I. So do serial killers because they use the Chinese food analogy on why they're serial killers. I tried it, I liked it, I did it again. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to do it again an hour later. I remember doing commercials for Yoon Louie, the Chinese photographer. He said, have your picture taken now. You'll want to take it again an hour later. I <laughs> <laughs> <Aye. laughs> He liked that, though. He thought that was fun. Looking back over the year... What did we have on the show? We had Judith A. Yates. Remember her, her book? Put the money in my purse. Well, that's usually what women
1: say. Yeah, put the money in my purse, or leave it on the nightstand. Well, you know it's the old saying, Burl. Your your money, yeah. My money is mine. Uh, your, your money, money is, mine, is mine. mine. Our
0: money is mine. Right. And Dennis McDougall, You know, he, he revealed something on this program he never told anybody else because his book on Bob Dylan biography of Dylan begins with Bob Dylan on heroin crashing the van with all the equipment in it for the concert so uh, when he was on the show last time it's the one we're referring to yeah. said so you gotta tell me how in the world I mean I'm a true crime writer I do research how in the world did you get this story did so you know that Dylan was on heroin when he crashed the van that had all the van's equipment in it he goes I got that information from the roadie I said, "Well, how? Why would the roadie tell you that? Because the roadie's my stepson. <laughs> but he's not the roadie anymore. Well, it's long since done.
1: Um, I, I was fascinated by um, by uh, Judas' story of the of women bank robbers. Yep.
0: Yep. Uh, Ethel at place. Remember her from Buscaglione Sundance Kid? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes.
1: Wasn't that uh, Ross?
0: Yeah, Catherine Ross. Yeah. Yeah, they robbed the National Bank in Villa Mercedes, Argentina, December 19th, 1805. She was a skilled horsewoman. And a crackpot, a uh, crack shot with a mysterious past. Mmm. She,
1: hand- she was nice looking, though. She was a handsome lady. I but am- the, the book details a whole number of women that chose to rob banks.
0: Well, well, well it makes more sense to rob banks than it does to rob an in and out I guess. <laughs> they didn't have them back in those days. Well,
1: I don't know. I think, you know, they're, they're more adept at robbing wealthy men. Yeah. But uh, there's a, um, a really cute joke. Yes. Um, a, uh, a nebbish Jewish fellow um, needs, wants to get married. His father is passing and he's going to inherit $50 million. Mm. And so he's looking for some companionship to share the wealth with. Right. And so he meets a, a number of women and he meets this lady and she, he says, you know, tells her the story. And she says, mm, thank you very much. And then two days later, she was his stepmother.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Makes sense. I like the one about uh, back from the like the fiddler on the roof days, right? Back, yeah, I do D. Yep. The local prostitute. Now in Yiddish, the word for a prostitute is nafka. And there was a woman who was a prostitute in the little village there, and but everyone respected her because she was performing a very useful service. Almost as useful as a no, circumcision. No,
1: that's not useful.
0: Not uh, <laughs> useful. Uh, and so everyone spoke to her very respectfully. They called her Mrs. Nofkowitz. <laughs> 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 well, and they they wind up leaving the little shuttle there in the old country and come to America and become Americans. Says, several years later, one of the, the fellows of the village recognizes her on the streets of New York. She says, Mrs. Novkowitz, Mrs. Novkowitz. Well, they recognize each other and they catch up on all the time. She says, You know, I'm no longer Mrs. Novkowitz. I'm an American now. I got a new name. What's that? Mrs. Horowitz. <laughs> Get up, bump. Oh, that's a good one. I got to remember that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Mrs. Novkowitz. All uh, right. And then we, were speaking, then we had The Last Jewish Gangster, <coughs> Volume well, 1, Volume 2. Well, you know, you you're jumping around. Oh, yeah. Uh, we had Nick Bryant with Sex Scandals. Those are fun. Well, what about Ron
1: Fren- Frenzel and the Shadow Man?
0: Yeah, well, th- that was interesting for a variety of reasons. Not only is it an interesting case, or an interesting book from Ron. But that was the uh, first one, his first time in history, the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit created a psychological profile to catch a serial killer. Right Now this ties me perfectly to buy two books together would be to buy Shadow Man by Ron Fransell and By Murder in the Family by Burl Baer, which is a book about the first time in history that an FBI profiler was allowed to testify at a trial. How about that? The two go together well.
1: Well, we're going to talk about what's coming up next year when uh, at the end of
0: the show. What happens next year? I don't know. You can well, tell. It'll be our 50th uh, birthday.
1: Oh, excellent.
0: Yeah, we've had a bar for two years ago.
1: You know, um, <laughs> on average, how long do your hosts live? Live?
0: Well, <laughs> 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 I'll tell you, I don't know if it's bad, good, or bad. Uh, I think
1: it's four years, four and a half
0: years. Four and a half years is the life expectancy of a co host on my show? Yes.
1: And I, I think that
0: the FBI should be investigated. Speaking of the FBI, uh, you think I know the answer to this question, and that is I think I've figured out where the fraud on my Cash App card comes from. Where? AMPM Arco. Too much good stuff. Yeah, too much to fake charges. I went back and did a you know, comparative search. Any time there has been fraud on my Cash App card, it is within twenty-four hours of using my Cash App card. At the uh, Arco A.M.P.M. Mini Mart uh, on Pico Canyon Road Stevenson Ranch. Huh? Now, it doesn't happen using any other card. But if I use my cash app card, almost immediately, by the next day, someone's buying a video game from a company in Sweden know, <laughs> something like that. But this time, it was a cloned card. I'm asleep in my little trundle bundle bed in Stevenson Ranch with my cash card in my wallet. And while I'm asleep, someone with an identical card hits the uh, ATM at the Wells Fargo outside at the corner of Sepulveda and Victory It takes $100 out of my account. Just 100 Yep.
1: I'm amazed you had $100 <laughs> in well, your account. That
0: was my last $100. <laughs> I said, please contact Mark Boyer and tell him someone took his $100. <laughs> uh,
1: that's got to be really
0: annoying for the
1: thief. You know, oh, I'm going to get some cat. What
2: the
0: f? What a deadbeat! <laughs> what, a, what a deadbeat! How are you get it <laughs> Jesus
2: Christ!
0: Well, uh, there's an excellent book from many years ago called The Birthday Party. In fact, I think it won the Edgar Award that year, true crime book. There's this nice Jewish fellow who's like the assistant prosecutor in New York, and he goes to the ATM day day before his birthday. They got some cash. He's got his gun in his ribs. He gets kidnapped. They don't know he's the prosecutor. He's this guy. But he's got a nice balance in his account, some thousands of dollars. Yeah. They're going to take him back to the bank, and he's going to do a withdrawal right. of all of his money and give it to them. They find out it's his birthday. So as long as they got him kidnapped, so it shouldn't be a total loss, they have a birthday party for him. <laughs> <laughs> They bring in some hookers. <laughs> Treat him to a great old time, before they have him
1: steal all of his money. Now, I've I've mentioned this before on the show that I had spent a lot of time doing uh, fraud analysis for the banks that I worked for, and uh, at the start of my career, ATMs were brand new. And I worked for a financial institution that was one of the first to roll out ATMs in in Southern california and it became you know quite interesting as the uh transaction patterns of of people and what they were doing now some would get twenty dollars and then tim you know an hour later get another twenty dollars Forty-five minutes later, to get another twenty dollars. buy them dubs, yeah. so um, I was asked to, to to come up with some kind of statistical analysis of the patterns, and so I came up with you know the frequency of customers doing these things, and then they took a look at them at yeah. the uh, um, uh, the fraud department, and then they came back with a list. We want you to write a program that will track this activity and also give us an opportunity to add others to the list or take them off. And one of the one of the uh, most common uh, tells that something was wrong was somebody getting the maximum amount at 11:45, then going back at 12:05, and then going at 12:10 and getting another 500. Right because the limit would reset at midnight and they get a thousand dollars and it was it was determined through statistics and contact that that particular activity happened legitimately less than four percent of the time
2: Hmm.
1: it was almost always fraud so um we would get this report and then the customer would get contacted and so that was interesting, the kind of... Now, if, if that
0: $100 had been taken out of, say, my Chase account or any of the others, I would get that money back immediately. Because this is fraud, didn't do it, cloned card, I've canceled that card, I've ordered a new one. Right. Bang, they would have given me my money back right then. But no... Cash up said, It'll take us at least ten to fourteen days to investigate this. So there's nothing to investigate. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> I was asleep. I had the card in my wallet. My wallet's in a different city than where this fraud took place. <laughs> you know, it's real simple. You give me back the hundred bucks. If you wanna see what the guy look like, get all of those Fargo, they got a table to show you the slump. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Meanwhile I still don't have the hundred bucks back. Because it hasn't been uh, enough time for them to investigate right. and earn interest on the money they don't have.
1: See, so we also had uh, uh, Daniel Janis
0: on. Oh, we always had Daniel
1: Janis on. Yes, he was talking about being part of the incarcerated nation. He was, and boy,
0: did that work out well for him.
1: Well, <laughs> I don't know. I'm. If I had my druthers, yes, um, I would. Uh, I would wear them. Regularly.
0: Yes. <laughs> Those are nice looking brothers you get on there, son. <laughs> um, I would I would avoid the incarceration part. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it was difficult for him because here he was, a nice, nice young man, multilingual, and the documents to prove it. Ah. Huh? And, uh, He developed a heroin addiction. That's the thing about heroin is, well, it's actually addicting. Not just something you enjoy, but something your body decides you must have or you get sick. So people aren't getting high doing the heroin. They just stop him throwing up. Well, he's now run out of money. He's got a brand new bride, but he needs that heroin. So he became the apologetic bandit. Uh-huh. He'd go out and say, pardon me, I hate to bother you, but if think- you don't mind, I'd like to rob you right now for enough money to go buy some heroin. Uh, and then people would either say, hell no, punch him in the nose, and he'd go home, uh, or they'd give him the money. And he had a pocket knife on him, so that makes it armed, right? Uh-huh. He did that 10 times, and so he got uh, 10 years. It's interesting, you know, You.
1: Um, i I try you know i didn't get the opportunity to ask him um if he if he actually thought that he would get away with it he and, did <laughs> and I just don't understand that uh I mean you walk up there's your face mm-hmm. you know you're not you're not wearing a ski mask or you know dressed as a dressed as uh you know uh, Goldberg, fictitious yeah. character
0: you know like burl bear yeah fictional character. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Bear was very animated Hence we thought he was a cartoon and
1: Then we had a lovely discussion About Albert Hoffman Albert Hoffman
0: yeah. you know, Is he also part of the International Jewish Laser uh, Conspiracy
1: No, no he, uh, I, think, uh, I think it was um, Some kind of uh FSD some kind of what? Wasn't it uh, the
0: uh, psychedelics of the time? Oh, Dr. Hoffman. Yeah. Yeah, the most famous bicycle ride in history. Yes. He worked for Sendo's. Yes, Seth Ferranti brought us the story. Yes. Well, that, that's a very famous story of uh, uh, Dr. Albert Hoffman. Uh, he was uh, working for a treatment for migraine headaches, which he did come up with uh, LSD. 50 is what is used as a treatment for migraine headaches. This boundary of prescriptions is called something. You know, it's called those names like, you know, Riskovitska or something, you know. Cure your psoriasis and your migraine headache at the same time. Uh, but LSD-25, you got some of that on him. and went for a bicycle ride. And the next thing you know, he's hitting a wall of paisleys. And he went, hmm, this is interesting. I think this will change the course of modern man and music. Uh, well, <laughs> and I mean, might even cure no. alcoholism. Which you is- know, 50-50, that's not too bad. No. So, uh, at- so on his 100th birthday, they had a big uh, clam bake in Switzerland, which uh, Dennis McDougall went to and interviewed everybody. And he still has all those videotapes of him interviewing all these people that showed up for uh, Dr. Hoffman's 100th birthday. Which is awful nice of them, to show yeah, up. It's cool. I should live so long. Or maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> it depends on what condition well, I'm, my I'm, condition is know,
1: in. We, we are all
0: amazed. And amused, agastogog and thunderstruck. That you're still breathing. That I'm still here. Yes. Yeah. It was kind of tragic when I was in the hospital having a quadruple bypass and a new heart valve. Howard Lapidus, the late, great Howard Lapidus, former co-host of this show, as you well know. Yeah. uh, and his lovely wife, and they came to visit me in the hospital, which was very nice of them. And then uh, he dies.
1: Yes, <laughs> uh, we already discussed the last. But that's life not right.
0: He's not supposed to. I was the one that was supposed to, but I didn't. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh...
1: And then we talked with uh, the lovely Nick Bryant. Oh, about... I like Nick. He's a character. Uh,
0: all, all kinds of sex scandals. Well, you know, I, we had the question why wasn't Jeffrey Epstein arrested a lot earlier? It was a very good reason for that. Too many powerful people. Well, not only that, but being... He wasn't just, you know, having these videotapes of everyone from Bill Clinton to Trump to uh, Joe Smith. Uh, who else? Anyone you can think of uh, stupid uh, underage girls and boys. But also foreign dignitaries that he could blackmail. And he was an asset to the CIA and the FBI. So any time he went to be arrested, the government would intervene and say, step down. He's an asset. He's a confidential informant. He works for our wise federal government.
1: That, you know, that allows abuse of, of little children.
0: Yes. And the violation of other people's rights. So that's the reason why uh, he didn't get busted. until uh, Some newspaper did a big expose. It was too big to ignore at yeah. that time. But uh, yeah, you can get away with all sorts of stuff if uh, you can keep it on the down low long enough and you got a lot of powerful people in your pocket. Well, you're in their pocket. they got a camera in your pocket and their pocket.
1: Eventually, eventually, the truth comes out.
0: Yeah, as Burl Bear says, it all comes out in the wash. It's just a spin cycle that makes you crazy.
1: Right, and then we had an expose on uh, one, of, uh, one of the greatest rock and roll songs from the 60s.
0: What? All Along the Watchtower. All Along the Watchtower. Oh, on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes. Where they do All Along the Watchtower, and Elton John's on the piano, and so on. It devolves musically into this core structure, which is... Dan 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 Louis Louis Louis, Louis. <laughs> We went up. Oh, Bob Dylan singing oh, all over the Watchtower oh, oh. to Louis Louis, <laughs> and I actually found a video of, of Dylan singing Louis Louie, which I thought was cool.
1: So we uh, we, we talked with William Craig uh, about uh, the uh, an ex uh, an ex Green Beret and the killing of his wife, and the questions that are still.
0: Yeah, they locked him up, and he didn't do it.
1: All along the watchtower.
0: Yeah, Prince is kept to you. You know who plays the acoustic guitar at the beginning of that song? The Jimi Hendrix version? Yeah. Dave Mason.
1: Oh, a classical gas.
0: No. No?
1: No, that's... No, that's Mason
0: Williams. That's Mason Williams. Not <laughs> to be confused with Paul Williams.
1: Well, he's shorter. <laughs> he's shorter. Uh, he, uh, he is one of my favorite people. When he When he got up to accept the... Uh, award for um the song he and Barbara Streisand wrote together uh for the for the movie
0: well uh, for Stars is Born their version
1: yeah what i have to look it up evergreen yeah evergreen and then he gets up to, to to accept the award and he says i like to accept this award unfortunately Barbara couldn't be here she's out making a tree
0: <laughs> I mean, what
1: making a tree oh because she's god
0: yeah <laughs> Only God could make it free
1: It was very, it was very fun
0: Yeah, I liked it when uh, Prince's Little Feather whatever It was, wasn't even Native American Showed up for Marlon Brando at the Oscar Awards mm-hmm. When he won for The Godfather
1: Protest the treatment of Native
0: Americans Yeah
1: And then uh, then we had something uh, From David S. Larson uh, Near and dear to my Jewish heart The yes. last Jewish gangsta
0: Yes, that was your family
1: well, uh, I I knew some of them.
0: I'm sure you did.
1: Some of them, they're Jewish gangsters, and yeah. uh, I had family members that worked for them.
0: And who didn't?
1: Well, you know, if you had money and you were you had skills, you could work for them.
0: So for some reason, that reminded me of my daughter asking this very good friend of hers, one of her roommates in school, and. Her roommate comes back one night and is So excited. So, oh, the greatest thing happened what was that I just had sex with the dwarf from Twin Peaks. <laughs> <laughs> she says, May I ask you a question? Why exactly did you have sex tonight with the dwarf from Twin Peaks? She said, Well, who knows? Might I'd have the opportunity again. <laughs> <laughs> the, the very nice gentleman uh, Dwarf from, from Twin Peaks Was so impressed That this young lady uh, Had sex with him That he uh, paid for her and her boyfriend To come down to LA And go for the thank you gift yeah. was very sweet of him Who did that for me
1: About uh, the life of Michael J. Hardy uh, A chubby Of
0: the last Jewish gangsters There's still plenty of them <laughs>
1: Well, I don't, you know, uh, is the Nostra still a thing, or is it... Doing?
0: Oh, yeah. So, I mean, you get to the point where you've got mafia dons wearing wires for the feds. <laughs> I mean, that's how strange it's gotten. Another thing that's peculiar, and people say, how do you do this? In a forthcoming book that Frank C. and I, have, I don't know the name of it because we're going to change the title. We've got a working title. We don't know what it's going to be called. There is a portion of the book that involves the... The American Mafia joining forces with the Russian Mafia to scam billions of dollars from the U.S. government. Sounds like a plan. Sounds like a plan. So, you know, Frank's a great resource. Frank decides, well, I'll just get hold of that Mafia Don and ask him about it. Sure enough. We have this in depth interview
2: <laughs>
0: with uh, this mafia dog from the Colombo crime family who joyously answers all of our questions. <laughs> because it is oh, yeah, it was great. I got to tell you, these Russian mafia guys, the best stand up guys, we made a fortune. <laughs> and he outlines how they did it, what they did, what great guys they were. Because after all, you can't do anything to them it more than seven years ago. <laughs> That's your limitations, right? And he goes to how he met him, what a great deal it was, how much money, why he didn't get. (laughs) And he goes on YouTube. We gave him a list of questions. And he goes on YouTube and records himself answering all our questions so we can just turn on YouTube and get all our answers. That's awful nice of him. Then we got a guy from the Russian mob to do the same thing.
1: (laughs) And he can cooperate the stories.
0: Yeah, the people say, how do you get these people to do that? Why do they do that for you? It's very simple. They trust us. That's what it comes down to. They trust us. They you know we're not going to do anything to screw them over. Yeah. Well,
2: right.
0: That's like when people were stubbed that Adam Diaz, who was from the Dominican Drug Cartel, calls Frank up on the phone. Hey, this is Adam Diaz from the Dominican Drug Cartel. I understand you're doing a book about, that uh, I figure heavily in, about, uh, you know, portrayal in blue, about, uh, you know, Mickledown and Ken Uriel. I just want to make sure I'm portrayed properly so you got any questions. <laughs> <laughs> sure bunch you the cool. first time you met can roll Michael out. Oh sure, well, I was all this cocaine and that <laughs> uh, people talked to us and uh, let <laughs> me in. The, the agent from uh, alcohol Tobacco, and Firearms wanted to know if uh, this particular fellow who put out a big rock festival up in the Northwest had come to me and showed me his gun and a bullet with my name on it. <laughs> you know, he's a convicted felon. He wasn't supposed to have a gun or bullets with your name on it. <laughs> I said, well, he didn't use a bullet standing here. Uh, he had that guy. Michael Friedman was his name. The guy that had a bullet with my name on it. He cut a deal that he could do this rock festival. Uh, it was sats up Tin Cup races. Michael of the Beast Boys and Spencer David What's <laughs> <was> so said? Vass is us. Vass loose. So I don't know how they found out about that, but uh, anyway, uh, what Freeman did is he cut this deal where they would give them. thank you for the ethical behavior. Uh, or lack thereof. Or lack thereof.
1: What else? We talked uh, favorite subjects. Rock and roll. Ted Bundy. Uh, this was Ted's first victim when he was young.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Did he grab this kid? Probably. Well, he lived in the neighborhood. His uh, next door neighbor in Walla Walla it was Bundy's roommate in Salt Lake. Small world after all. It's
1: a small, small world after,
2: after.
0: after. all. Yeah. You know a lot of actors are very small people, tiny people. Wonder they? uh, they're not dwarves. They look like midgets. You know, well, you know, it's Tom Cruise's
1: okay. anything that, Oh he's a marvelous you know. actor and he's tiny. Tiny. Uh that's one of my favorite <laughs> favorite sketches from Honey Python where they're they're filming a movie and the lead the lead is tiny. The small. And so they dig ditches for the actress to stand Oh, yeah, in. that's
0: a true story. They did it with Catherine Hepburn and Alan Ladd. Oh, funny. Yeah, Alan Ladd was a big cowboy star. was about 5'3 or something. And Katherine Hepburn was like 6'8. <laughs> so they dig a trench for Catherine Hepburn to walk in, you know, when they were walking side by side. Oh, so she wouldn't tower over like a, you know, she's mommy, little kid. Now in Maverick, one with Mel Gibson and Jodie Foster... Mel is short, tiny guy. Yeah. Jodie Foster's even tinier, so she had to stand well, they did a kissing scene, which they do. She is standing on a uh, like a Coca-Cola crate <laughs> to get her high enough to be able to kiss Mel Gibson. It was short. She's tiny thing. <sighs> yeah, you were on set for that film. I was right? on set for that. Oh, Pretend, pretending his lips were a vagina. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's how it works. Uh, one of my favorite stories on the set of Maverick is I always I loved James Garter and he was the nicest guy and, uh, he was always in pain very difficult for him to walk there's a scene in that movie where uh, uh, Mel Gibson, James Garter sneaking up on these guys who were guys wearing a wedding dress <laughs> these bad guys sneaking up, tying up their horses he's doing this on the back lot and Richard Donner was the directorial right cut and Gordon would almost collapse, and he'd signal to me, and I would come out there. He'd lead him back, you know, to come where the chairs where he'd sit down, and I'd be massaging He was in such pain. He'd say, it's the weirdest thing, man. He says, as long as the camera's rolling, there's no pain. He says, the minute daughter says, cut, and that hits, and I about, you know, fall to the ground. Because I'm in really great, horrible pain right now. He says, but don't tell Mel, because Mel will want to blow and Bill Gibson says to me, hey, Burl. He goes, you want to see me do some acting? And I said, sure. He goes, a star hissy fit. Bill, blah, blah, blah. And he storms off the set, wings at me. And he shuts the whole thing down so Carter wouldn't have to uh, do any more shots that day.
1: Wow. Well, what a nice guy.
0: He was a nice guy. He told me, though, he says, I'll tell you something, bro. We were having a cup of coffee together. He goes, there's like alcohol. I've become the biggest asshole in the world. I say, the stupidest things, do the stupidest things, insult people. He's just a total jerk. He says, so I'm he says if, if I drink, he says, all bets are off. I'm just, you know, forget it. Sure enough. <laughs>
1: he was right. Our cohort Kendall. Yeah. Uh, police corruption and whether or not
0: it's an epidemic. Um, sounds like something you put on a pizza. Would you like some prosecutorial on that?
1: Uh, no, I prefer some prosciutto.
0: Yeah. Some betshuva? <laughs> But the police union is strong enough that they can keep him from being fired most of the time.
1: Yeah, I had uh, a manager, top manager. But he didn't do anything. Well, he didn't do anything. No, he'd come in, he he would do absolutely no work. And so um, he got reprimanded and reprimanded. And um, eventually. so what they would do is work out a deal, and he would get demoted.
0: Demoted or promoted? Demoted. Yeah.
1: And then he was the best employee in the place. Was back to doing nothing.
0: What a gig. And,
1: and then it would be six months, and then they'd take him back to the personnel commission, and he'd demoted again, three months of work, and then six more months doing nothing. Until eventually, several years have gone by. Three years have gone by of mostly doing nothing. nothing, Successfully doing nothing. There's no no more demotions available. And they finally were able to fire him. (laughs) It's not easy. But he basically worked about a year out of five. Over the five years.
0: Well, would he get awfully bored not working?
1: I... I don't know because he had nothing. Anything. And there was no point for me to interact with him.
0: Well, this guy also goes back to what Michael Gordine, uh, who's also in the NYPD, he would be like number three most corrupt cop, but he never got in trouble. Uh, and the reason he never got in trouble was he just kind of made a deal. You don't give me any trouble, and I will never tell the names of the my superiors who are more corrupt than I was. Oh. Or like the ones above him. Right. His superiors. He knew well, euphemistically. Yeah. and. That's the deal. He could do do anything he wants. Cops stop him if he was doing something he shouldn't be doing, and they see who he is, have a nice day, Mr. Gertine. Yeah, right.
2: right.
0: (laughs) Nice work if you could get it. You get it if you try. uh, One of my cousins, who's an attorney, that's a lot of them, a lot of attorneys, my friend, was reading my book, uh, Headshot. Two and a Half Psychopaths. Uh, very strange trial, lots of prosecutorial misconduct. And it talks about the the prosecutor gets replaced by another prosecutor. Oh, the, uh, this is the way it was. The public defender, defense attorney, becomes the new prosecutor of his own client.
1: <laughs> and that's not a conflict of interest.
0: Work that out. He ran against the current prosecutor because he thought that prosecutor was an ass and was uh, engaged in too much prosecutorial misconduct. So he becomes a prosecutor, and my cousin calls me and says he does even more misconduct than the guy he replaced. (laughs) That's a problem. Prosecutors are supposed to take it over. People think prosecutors are supposed to prosecute people, but they're not supposed to prosecute people that they think are are not guilty. But they do. Ask that question of everyone. Every every prosecutor on the show, I've asked. Have you been pressured by your superiors to prosecute someone that you believed was innocent? And they all said yes.
1: So correct my pronunciation if I'm I'm incorrect. The Vizcaya Museum. Vizcaya, yeah.
0: Vizcaya Museum heist. There was no heist. Although this poor guy, a 19-year-old guy, and his buddy went to prison for a year or so for it. uh, They were the ones who wound up with the stuff from the display at the Vizcaya, uh, and in a van parked on the freeway, and they got caught. Uh, But as far as uh, the people, that, when you read the brochure about the people who were arrested on suspicion of possession of stolen merchandise... Uh, there was no heist. The security guard owed a lot of gambling debts. <laughs> and so he we was selling off stuff for the museum. to Pay for his debt. Yeah. I know all the inside dope bunnies, inside dopes. Tough business. Uh, uh, what? We, uh, were you around when we had uh, uh, Kenji Gallo on, the book Break Shot? I don't think so. That was uh, with uh, uh, Don, Don, Don Oldman, his yeah. co-host. He's an he's, well, he's Asian, he's in the mob, in the Mafia, which is a good trick. <laughs> to the American Mafia, and he's wearing a wire for like seven years. And then, you know, first of all, that's a pretty good trick. And but the only people that got busted, he said, some of these guys who were in the Mafia, they were just total jerks. He said, I mean, they had no ethics. I mean, for criminals, they had no ethics. To live outside the law, you must be honest, these guys were total jerks. And he said, well, it was disgusting. So we became a confidential informant and a snitch for the feds to get the bad criminals arrested. <laughs> we got to clean up these criminals. Some of them are just dishonest.
1: And then we, uh, we had a lovely chat with uh, one of our contemporaries in the true crime podcast world.
0: Yes, who was that?
1: Alan R. Warren. Alan R. Warren does the show every week.
0: He cranks out about a book a week, too.
1: Yes. <laughs> the Toronto Serial Killer, Bruce MacArthur.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Alan Cranks out a lot of these books. They're tiny. They're tiny. They're not full. I mean, they're, you know, they're like quickies.
1: Right. This one involved, revolved around the gay
0: community there in Toronto. No, so does Alan R. Warren, but he's not a serial killer.
1: Ah. And then the lack of, uh, of police involvement and dealing with the crime in that community.
0: That is a problem to this day. Now, it turns out, you've heard of the, uh, the Stonewall incident, uh, Stonewall nightclub, which was a gay nightclub, that uh, was the first real flashpoint of uh, discrimination against the gay community where they all got beat up and, you know, all that
2: right.
0: and stuff. And uh, uh, the guy who owned the, uh, the place... He's the father of a very good friend of mine. In fact, he sold his life rights and story rights to Sony. He'd uh, been working on a screenplay about uh, his career and how, he wound, how the mob and the gay community wound up working together and getting, and getting harassed by the cops. And uh, wound up being aligned with the uh, defending the uh, gay community. Interesting story. It's uh, always been a flashpoint. Of course, you always have the, the problem of uh, any police department that is plagued with a certain degree of corruption which they all are. Even the smallest ones, we could have some guy there who's a jerk. Uh, and then some people are fantastic. There are some cops here in LA who are absolutely fantastic. I mean, they will lay down their life for you in a heartbeat, do anything they can to help you. And you got other ones who will rob you blind <laughs> if you turn sideways. You know, it must be difficult for them to work together. Even in a small town like Walla Walla, we had a, one real jerk cop. The other cops couldn't stand him, they always would try to get rid of him. Because they, they knew what he was like. Yeah.
1: Do you remember uh, Three Billboards uh, above, uh, over Ebbing, Missouri? Yeah, yeah. And then um, it starts out with, of the Francis McDormand story, but it turns out to be the transition of the jerk-asshole cop into a human, into a human being, and a caring
0: person. That's the better itself. Bring on the Ebenezer Scrooge.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, but that's that's part of the charm of the film is yeah. the evolution of this character from a real POS to
0: to a PDF to understand <laughs> to a
1: searchable PDF. Yeah. yeah. Now he's a JPEG.
0: And now he's a JPEG, huh? Yeah. Uh. <laughs> like a Jewish princess. <laughs> And
1: then we talked to a non-Jewish person. We did. Mr. Gentile.
0: Yeah. Matthew Gentile. I think he's Jewish. <laughs> Mr. Gentile, I think he's Jewish. <laughs>
1: and uh, this was uh, something that I still find fascinating. Uh, he made a movie about a person who is alleged to have killed um, a, a, bank, uh, uh, a uh, guard in a, of a with a Brinks truck yeah. Kind of thing um, And then fled the country Or fled Yeah But there's They never no... caught the guy
0: What? They never caught the guy He's right. still and out there
1: they, He made a movie About a case Where we'd have an end Yeah um, the movie ends With the guy getting away Well you know um, so, uh, Who was it? Um, the, the guy and the girl and They're still running today
0: Bonnie and Clyde? No, no. <laughs> Lois and Clark?
1: Camp song?
0: Oh, oh, uh, Take the bunny and Run. Yes. Steve Miller Band.
1: Steve Miller Band.
0: That's right. Take
1: the Money and Run. <laughs> yes.
0: right. and money Bobby <laughs> Sue and uh, whatever, whatever. Uh, the lyrics are just pathetic. Steve Miller does not know how to write lyrics.
1: Yeah, well, he made money and, uh, you know, screw everybody.
0: That's what I say
1: yeah so I found that interesting that you know they got this this fellow who's charismatic and a drifter, and you know he robs the bank for a small amount of money, and then you know he's just he's out there you know waiting for whoever to show up and say, Okay, come on with us you know the that master criminal that disappeared for twenty five years they finally caught.
0: Who like what, Whitey Bulger? Yes, Whitey Bulger. Oh. Yeah. Well, how about the horrifying story, uh, true one? We had a guy on the show. This is several years ago. Of uh, at this very devout Christian college back in Texas, where this guy gets the hots for the wife of the uh, head Christian ruler of the, universe, the university, and being that Jesus doesn't approve of divorce, they decide to kill him. <laughs> Like, murder is fine, just don't get a divorce. So they decide to kill her husband so they can stop. Okay. Yeah. So they kill the husband. And they go, gee, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. And so they don't do anything. And they split up on the dock at night and disappear into the ozone. And it never occurs to anybody to even suspect them of his murder. 20-some years later, some new cops start looking over the cold cases and they quickly figure out who who done it. And of course, there's no statute of limitations on murder. This right. is the guy who invented Frappuccino, by the way, is the guy who did this. Not the guy who did the murder is the guy who invented Frappuccino. So they go looking for this couple. Of course, they weren't together. They both, you know, went off their own lives. He went to work for uh, Starbucks, inventing Frappuccino and she goes off and marries someone else. She's in some other state, happily married. Knock on the door. Oh. She opens the door and there's cops going, we're here to arrest you for the murder of your husband. She goes, I've been waiting 25 years for you to show up. Every day she thought that the doc was going to come at the door. Right. Same thing happens to him. Now listen to this. Separately, each one of them cuts a deal to testify against the other in exchange for only doing five years Minimum security for first-degree premeditated murder.
1: And they both essentially get away with it again.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, and neither one of them had to testify because they both got the same deal. Yeah. Five years, minimum security, and I think he only served half of that.
2: Yeah.
0: That's we, uh, criminal.
1: We talked to uh, Ron Francell. We always talk to a Rod Franzel. We love friends of Yeah, we well, you know, he's just you know turn him on, you know, wind him up, and let him go. Yeah,
0: I say here's Rod Franzel, and we go out for coffee, and come back, and the show's <laughs> over.
1: And we talked about his fabulous career, uh, churning out these tomes of masterpiece true
0: crime. He's a great writer. Of course, we had Punch on.
1: Well, we always have
0: punch. Oh, People love punch. We talked.
1: Oh, uh, that was a fascinating episode because we were talking about non-fungible tokens. Yes. And if you don't know what that is, you uh, we have a salve that will take care of it.
0: Yes, yes, right. It helps with the fungus too. <laughs> uh,
1: a fungible asset—that's a uh, a term in um, economics—is something that physically exists. A car a house burl bear uh burl bear is <laughs> worthless then uh a non-fungible asset is something that doesn't exist like a digital <laughs> a digital image that you put on the blockchain and you own and nfts were for a period of time a hot topic but as like a lot of fads come and go this one is went.
0: yep uh we wanted to do our book forthcoming books by Manhattan as an NFT the entire book yeah that was, some people think it's really cool people who are into NFTs are into NFTs yes and so people who are into that would love to have the book on NFT right so we're talking about how do we get the book on NFT it costs about five grand to do it there's one company that says they do it they don't even return phone calls can say Aunt, please leave a message oh. <laughs> so But Matthew Berkowitz, son of Cinema, who uh, has optioned the uh, TV film rights, uh, he says he's got some people who can do it. At least we'll do the covers of that NFT. Well, but then
1: what about, is this coming out of Wild Blue? Yeah. Well, wouldn't wouldn't they have some say on on a portion of that ownership?
0: Yeah. Yeah, so they would, yeah. Yeah, we'll work it out with them, yeah.
1: But then I don't um, don't expect much because you know you come up with an idea, you throw it out there, and if it works, it works. Bitcoin
0: worked for a while. I could make money with Bitcoin right now on contract trading. We do sixty second increments? Oh. I did, I made money on that, but I didn't have enough money to keep making money. Now, if I had a money source, like if Mark Boyer had a lot of money, we could make a lot of money on contract trading on Bitcoin. Um,
1: We, um, (laughs) let us, let us square the docket first. Okay. (laughs) Before we discuss any other remediations to your direction.
0: Uh, Actually, it is is interesting because I I was explaining this to somebody else. They were, they've been... uh, investment company that guides your trade. They don't make any money unless you make money because uh, they get a you know, piece of the action. Uh, instead of saying, oh, yeah, Bitcoin's going to go up to this. I'll sell my Bitcoins. No, don't mess with that. You can make money if it's going down. You can make money if it's going up because you're just basically like doing trading on what's it going to be in 60 seconds. And so you're tracking on the trend. Uh, and so you say, okay, in 60 seconds, it's going to be up. And here's the X amount of dollars. It's like playing a roulette or something. But you do the research on the trend, uh-huh. and that's where you put the money. So the advisor will send you a message, say, okay, do this now within the next 30 seconds. Put X amount of dollars. It's going to be up. And you're going in 60 seconds or 180 seconds, whatever the time frame is. Do it now. Now, 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 now. And then you sit there and watch the clock. And then you're like, okay, you just... Got ninety eight percent profit on your money, and you wait for them to tell you the next time. So maybe a couple of times they're off, they're wrong, but you make it back the same day. Mm. Sounds risky. Yeah, but that's why they got these people just studying the trends constantly, constantly, constantly. And then they think, oh, we got this one. We know in the next sixty seconds it's not going to go down. You know the way the trends go. So.
1: And then, uh, then we talked uh, at the end of the year uh, with. Uh uh, a Dariana uh, Marek,
0: and then the escape from Mariupol. Mariupol. That was a hell of an episode. Yes. And just uh, had, we uploaded that. It's available now wherever wherever you listen to this fine show. Uh, some people are listening to it live right now at outlawradiolive.com. Uh, and then. Uh, we'll get the show from Matt, and we'll upload it to iTunes, Spotify, Owl, and all the other podcast platforms. Right?
1: Yes, the book uh, uh, chronicles her thousands of miles she had to trek to get out of harm's way and into the U.S.
0: Yeah, and it's, then they played beat her up when she got here. I didn't do that.
1: <laughs> no, she's yeah. here with her pooch.
0: Uh, that dog was lucky to get out of there. Yeah, she went up with the dog.
1: So you have you have some material. You have, I think, three, three things that are in the offing for next year. Why don't you tell us? What oh, are? I've got
0: five more than that. we got. It. First of all, we have Stealing Manhattan. That's the book we've been talking about for the past few years. That with Punch, Volume One. So three volume, which that's what makes it a trilogy. Uh, three volumes. That American Panthers, Stealing Manhattan, Volume One, uh, which covers from uh, World War Two, with Bunch's dad up to uh, 1992 I think 93, uh, comes out in April had hardback, softback, audio book whatever the fillings of your teeth wherever you get your books uh, then we also have the new book by Frank Girardo and uh, myself which is fascinating Dead Body in West Hollywood Alex Merksatter dead on the bed well dressed looks like he's taking a nap but he's dead Uh, We don't know who did it, we don't know who didn't do it. But we know the last three people who were in his apartment that night were Mark Itev, a low-level Russian gangster and friend of the deceased, and two homeless teenagers, one of them pregnant, the girl, obviously. What were they doing there? What were they doing there with this low-level Russian gangster? And what's the connection, and why is this guy dead? What's his motive? So his motive means an opportunity, right? What possible motive, was the means, what's the opportunity? Who killed him and why? Well, hello. Uh, so we were asked to investigate this. All right. We started investigating, where does it take us?
2: Yes, of course. Burl
0: Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, namely Matt Allen's backyard. (laughs) I thought I'd give it away. (laughs) Why why, why did you finally (laughs) give it away? Because it's so obvious. Obviously, we're in the light-up lounge, Matt Allen's backyard. He's our producer. I think we has to travel all the way to some secret bunker somewhere to come to his own He's place. He's just like uh, 100 feet from his... He uh, took us. <laughs> that too. <laughs> that too. Hi, True Crime Uncensored, produced by Magic Man Allen. I am the legendary Burl Bear, the man over there is Howard Lapidus, manager to the star. Yes, I am. And, 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 and will be for quite some time. The... Um, um yeah that's why are we doing this today why because we're not doing it next week because next week is yom kippur that's that is correct that is correct mark cg is our fact checker hello and now i get to do something i've been waiting a couple years to do i get to ask carrie droben carrie what are you wearing
2: (laughs) oh you know (laughs) hi burl
3: hi
0: (laughs) carrie it's howard Uh, let me uh He's going to apologize for me. There's no reason to, Howard. I'm going, to, going to apologize for him. I, I am going to, uh, uh,
1: I'm going to ask him to leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, but you've been trying to get him to leave for years, Howard. What's the difference?
0: The thing that I'd like to know, though, Carrie, is is uh, what is it the, uh, you wear? <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, you know, I only have one uniform.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, micro boots, uh, faded <laughs> jeans, a t
0: shirt, and a leather jacket.
3: There you go. Yes. My I, uniform.
0: I thought oh, it was my the my, uh, my Little Pony onesie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Nope.
3: Sorry to
0: disappoint. Oh, boy. That's too bad. <laughs> Pleasure with that My Little Pony movie coming out, too. That was, combo would be great. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. It's been a couple of years. You were just on yep, the verge yeah. of even more fame last time we talked to you. They were doing that TV show based <laughs> on your stuff. I'm surprised you're even still talking to us. But,
3: uh. <laughs> well, thank you for having me back. I know. It's been a two-year, well, it's been a ten-year odyssey, but definitely two years, um, you know, buried with another outlaw.
0: Yeah, Howard wasn't doing the show with but. us then. It was the late, great uh, Don Waldman. And I think it was the uh, first <laughs> month we were on the air, you were I guess, and you got hit by a truck and,
2: right. <laughs> and wound I up know. in the
0: hospital. I- and didn't get to do the show. and we. It,
3: I was a little afraid it was going to happen again today. as I was calling in thinking, God, did I get the wrong time, the wrong day? I <laughs> no, like...
0: no. You got it right. I know you've been on a rock and roll tour with your kids. That's uh, exciting. But yeah. uh, <laughs> you have an amazing ability, not only as a writer, but uh, we share a lot in common aside from the same shoe size, and that is criminals <laughs> will talk to us. Uh, you have this magic ability of these hardcore biker criminals just pouring their sweet little hearts out to you. How do yeah, you get away with this? How do you do it? Well,
3: I, I don't actually know what the secret is, but, you know, I have a pretty good rapport with everybody that I've written about, and uh, it, takes a, it takes a little while, though, to build that rapport. You know, I mean, they, a lot of our, especially with this latest book...
0: Yeah, um, The Last, Last Chicago the Boss.
3: Yeah, it, it took about two years, you know, to build that rapport because... Um, You know, Big Pete was not accustomed to speaking to people or being recorded or, you know, speaking without meeting the person first, so it was quite a feat to actually have multiple conversations with him. Um, In the beginning, it was really just phone calls, but then um, eventually... He allowed me to record him, and then we we actually had a pretty good rapport. For Why don't a you, of for years. the
0: sake of our, our audience that isn't already familiar with your brand new book, which just came out, I believe, what on the nineteenth? Uh yes, Tell God. us about the main character in this book, and he's a character.
3: <laughs> the main character is Big Pete. He. Um, it's really the best way to describe him as sort of a, as the godfather of the Chicago outlaws. So he was the head of the outlaw nation in Chicago. Um, and then he ran, uh, controlled um, a number of clubs up there. So it wasn't just the outlaws, but he had an incredible reputation um, of uh, basically change, changing the way the outlaws did things. Um, in Chicago, and he had a really uh, interesting symbiotic relationship with the mob um, and with the police force up there. So so the book really chronicles his rise to power and how he had such a magnetic personality that he was able to really cross over into multiple um, Multiple
0: groups well that's what struck Not me only... so fascinating about this fellow is he's obviously brilliant
1: <laughs> yeah. how, uh, how, it,
0: how how is how is it mark, the, don't die on us mark it's a true crime show, <laughs> but don't die on the show how, how is it you found your way into this guy
3: well he actually found me um, he ironically enough had read uh, Vagos, Mongols, and outlaws and um, because the last the last few uh, the last investigation covered in the outlaws Mongols, or the Vaglas, Monglas, and Outlaws, um, really profiled uh, Pete's chapter and the Northside Clubhouse, which is Pete's clubhouse. Um, Pete contacted me and said, you know, I'm I'm retired, and he sort of medically retired from his position with the Outlaws. He was dying of kidney cancer, is dying of kidney cancer. And so he thought it was time really to have a tell all about his life, his rise to power and um, just sort of what he was able to do as an outlaw and as the leader, you know, as a boss of them. And so, um, when he first contacted me, I my first reaction was no
0: <laughs> I've had <laughs> so it up to I, I, here with motorcycle gangs. Was that kind of your response?
2: <laughs>
3: yeah, it was pretty much I was tired, you know, after the, the VAGOs, I mean it was it was a great experience. You know, I had this wonderful um, ride with television, and I was tired. I was ready to switch genres, write something else, you know, and, and he came along, and, and um, you know, I, I wasn't really ready to tackle another big book, but he was persistent, and the more that I talked to him, the more I realized what a character was. He's actually very funny. I mean, he, he had me laughing through a lot of our conversations, which was very surprising to me. So, I um, I really enjoyed our talks. We we wound up. It was sort of like Tuesdays with Maury, except it was Sundays mm-hmm. with Pete. You know, where I wound up talking to him every Sunday for a year, for at least three hours. Yeah. So you know, I, I got oh, to know him very very well, and um, this is it. and it, and it kind of evolved from there. So it, it became not only was he my subject for you know writing, but um, you know, he became sort of a friend as this whole process went went through.
2: Now, he can't
0: now really uh, about- Carrie, here's a guy that's used to being in charge of everything. I mean, he was the boss of the boss. But you're a writer, and he's not. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Did there have to be some relinquishing of power on a few occasions?
3: Well, you know, that's the really interesting thing is that... Um, I I really didn't relinquish power. Um, I made it very clear from the beginning that I was going to listen to his story and I was going to be the storyteller. And I think that was very difficult for him at first, but I think the more that we got into the story and the more that he trusted me, I think in the end he was actually very surprised by what it produced and you know wound up loving the book. But I think he was, I mean, he had to have enormous trust in me to be able to turn this around because, you know, I, I, I'm i not the sort of writer that will write a chapter and send it to him and then write the next chapter and send it to him. I I waited almost a year before sending him most of it. <laughs> and um, it's just the my writing process. It wasn't that I was trying to be, you know, secretive or... Or anything, but I sort of, you know, it was it was kind of risky on both of our parts because he had to trust me to be the storyteller, and I had to trust that he was going to like what I was writing. So it was it was kind of a it was an interesting relationship.
0: It made me think of us. Remember the movie Wag the Dogs? You ever see the one with uh, with uh, Dustin Hoffman and? Robert De Niro. Oh
3: yeah. Yeah,
0: where yeah. he's producing this fake news thing about the Albanians or whatever. And they're trying to decide what kind of creature she's carrying across the bridge. Whether it's a bag of chips or it's a cat, and then what kind of cat. And and then the <laughs> the uh, the, uh, the client calls in and, and has an opinion. He goes, now they meddle. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <I think so. laughs> you know the, the client's meddling with the creative process about their product. it's kind of the same sort of thing you go through.
3: Yeah, it really is. I mean, I I didn't know what to expect because he was different from anybody I'd written about before. And the process of interviewing him and recording his story was very different, too. Um, So it it was a much, I, I would say, a much closer rapport than I've had with anyone else. And probably because, you know, probably some of that was he had to had some semblance of control over what he was telling me and what was gonna go in the book and um, and there were several times where, you know, I would I would always tell him, mean, you know, I'm not I'm not your lawyer, so if anything you tell me you don't want to get out there, you know, you have to make sure you tell me that you don't want this disclosed. So we had a little bit of that. Um, you know, so I, I think
0: <laughs> we have that same thing happen on the show Carrie, we had one guest on and we said did you ever kill anybody, he goes what's the statute of limitations on that we said we'll be right back after the 60 second break while he calls his
2: lawyer
3: <laughs> <laughs> I know yeah it really is, it's an interesting um, I straddle the fence a lot you know but I think it's, it's very helpful that I know the law and it's helpful that I'm a you know criminal defense attorney by day because I do have a sense of what I can and can't disclose, and what might be dangerous to disclose, and maybe, you know, maybe we should rephrase or rewrite this way so that it's not so obvious, you know, so it
0: was... Yeah, uh, so it's, it was it's, that is time. a real touchy thing. Uh, Georgia Durante uh, wrote uh, the book, *Company She Keeps. I, uh, When she was on the show, I, I asked her, said, Georgia... Weren't you worried that some of the mobsters would be mad at you, you know, for the stuff, stuff you revealed? She says, "Oh no, they're either dead or in jail, and they could care less. They kind of like me. What I'm, I was worried about were the Feds because they were laundering our money for us, and I was delivering all the money to the Feds. And uh, yeah, uh, I can see why they <laughs> that might be a little iffy. What uh, what What kind of stuff is your day job? What uh, What do you write during the day?
3: My day job. Um, well, I'm I'm still a, a criminal defense lawyer, so I do. What they call major felonies um, in uh, for the Maricopa County Attorney, and so I do you know anything from homicides to, um, RICO cases to um, drug cases. You know it just kind of runs the gamut, but um, mostly, mostly some of the major. I mean I have a lot of drug cases, um, drug trafficking and things like that, but um, nothing that is anything remotely close to what I write about. I don't ever represent bikers, at least not that I know of. I've had some white supremacists that I've represented, but
2: um,
0: that's very funny.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean that's interesting. I mean it's it's pretty prevalent in in the prison system, you know. So yeah. a lot of them will join that just to be, you know, they'll join the Aryan Brotherhood just to be safe, you know, quote unquote safe in the prison system. But um, but yeah, I don't I don't on purpose represent anybody who's. Uh, certainly not a member of a biker gang, but I haven't really represented any of the major gangsters. Um, so I, I kind of avoid that if I can. <laughs> I <if> don't <laughs> want there to be any type of overlap.
0: <laughs> yeah. What's, uh-huh. uh, what's your favorite case of all time?
3: Ooh, that I've written about or that I've tried? You
0: <laughs> <Neither> have <laughs> um, really tried. tried.
3: Um, you know, I had a very interesting case um, quite a few years ago where Uh, somebody was he was charged and convicted of a crime and spent eight years in prison and then I represented him on post-conviction and on post-conviction it turned out that the FBI agent who was involved in the sting um, had actually orchestrated the crime because he was involved or having a relationship with the confidential informant. So I thought that was a very interesting case. It had all kinds of twists and turns to it and um, and eventually, my client was released from prison. But you know, how do you get back eight years of your life?
0: Uh, yeah, I got one I'm uh, researching right now. We're at 16 years. It's almost the exact same scenario.
3: Wow. Yeah, it kind really, of it kind of gives you pause, though. You know, you wonder. I mean, we have a justice system that, you know, in in most in in many cases, is really sort
0: of injustice you know justice for or just us is what i yeah, like call just <laughs> Yeah, just us we have a system of laws but we don't necessarily have a system of justice
3: right exactly
0: maybe someday but not in our lifetime gary
2: <laughs>
0: which is why we no, make not, money writing about it well, well, well let's. Exactly, let, yeah. let's, let's mark a,
2: boyer
1: has a question let's take another slant on that um from your personal experience as a defense attorney have you run into prosecutorial or police misconduct uh, in your cases?
3: Um, yes, I actually have. Um, I've run into instances. We we have something in Arizona. I don't I don't know. They're probably similar um, in other states. But we have something called the Brady List, where if officers have a reputation of lying or um, doing something that's morally repugnant, they'll be on that Brady list. And that list is circulated so that the attorneys, the defense bar, gets a hold of that list, and they know to be on notice that if they get that officer in that particular case, then, you know, they're going to be able to request the personnel file for that officer and impeach him. And sometimes the cases get dismissed because that officer happens to be the case agent. So that's happened a few times, um, but they don't actually wind up going to trial in those scenarios because the officer's already on notice that something's happened.
0: So, What they do up in uh, Snohomish County, I found this one out, is the uh, defense attorney will have the former head of the uh, detective, shall we say, who's now retired, always be there when the police officer or detective is doing his deposition so that he can impeach mm-hmm. them because the lawyer himself can't do it. You know, by himself? <laughs> Mm, wow. So, you know, so when they say one thing in a deposition, then they get on the stand, then they, then they uh, are testifying. <laughs> is the
3: expression right, goes. Right, test-a-lying, Yeah. So they have a witness. That makes sense. That's, that's one way of handling it. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that it happens. I mean, the strange thing about, um, for me in writing, uh, the last Chicago boss was there were a lot of instances in that book where I talk about the corruption in the Chicago Police Department, and <clears throat> it was just. It was astounding to me how prevalent it was, at least from what Pete was telling me, and how much they, you know, they were really working sort of in tandem with the mob and with. I mean, they, there are scenes that that I depict in the book where the officers are actually wanting to be support club members to the outlaws.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, this is like a whole um, a whole group. They they were the night shift crew and they would go and they would you know they would wear their support we support our local outlaws they would put that on facebook there were there were instances where they wanted to um you know ride they would allow the outlaws to kind of do things on the freeway and sort of turn the other way for example if there was like a, a dui or they stopped him for speeding they would just let them go they almost were quasi they this particular shift this night shift um almost revered the outlaws. You know, they looked at them as heroes. And so there was this strange relationship that went on between them. I mean, it was almost like an unspoken code, you know, we won't tell on you if you don't tell on us. And yeah. and so and that's something that's always fascinated me is sort of this whole um other world in in law enforcement. I know it exists in, in different states, but it was just so apparent, um, at least from the materials and information I got from from Pete and the Chicago uh, Police Department, but it, it goes on, I'm sure, everywhere else. Where, yeah, like you know, I did to... the
0: book uh, with uh, Ken Urell, who was known supposedly as the second most corrupt cop in the history of the NYPD, uh, although I think there may have been some of the olden days that were more corrupt. But, <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, the situation is, he and his partner were very, very corrupt, you know, totally. And yet, at the same time, they were very good at being police officers because they always had their eyes open on how they could make a buck here, how they could scam this, how they could steal this, or whatever. Right. But at the same time, because they were so, so uh, hyper-vigilant, they were very, very good at their regular job. But they're making 13000 right. a year in their regular job and 8000 a week or whatever <laughs> with the right. Dominican drug cartel. Uh, you know, you've got to look where the money's coming from. Right, uh,
2: exactly.
0: And when uh, we had the uh, uh, former police chief, Norm Stamper, on from, you know, uh, was it uh, uh, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, you know, in favor of legalizing drugs, saying the the temptations for corruption when you get into the whole illegal drugs and uh, the money to be made is a big temptation for any police officer.
3: Right, it really is. I mean, that's that's something that was, I, I mean, I think... The, the interesting thing for me is that i think i've i've written about that sort of in different ways throughout the different books i've i 've had i mean some were government infiltrations, you know some was an informant infiltrating and then infiltrating different gangs and then infiltrating with the ATF and other law enforcement agencies you 've got <laughs> it. Yes, People-
0: I remember <laughs> that first one Gary. <laughs> <laughs> oh that ladies fun. and gentlemen i' got to tell you that book is absolutely incredible it was a i don 't know if you had one before <laughs> that, but that was the one that brought you to my attention. And about the guy who infiltrates the uh, the Hell's Angels for the uh, ATF, right. and uh, right. the ATF right. comes off as the biggest bunch of bozos on the planet. I was surprised. Yeah, that, <laughs> I was surprised they let you publish the book.
3: <laughs> well, I know, and they, but the the interesting thing about that is, I mean, and maybe it's not so uh, striking, but to me it was, is that that's that's why they call it the thin blue line. I mean, there's this thin veil between, you know, the What's legal, what isn't legal, what they're willing to do, what they're not willing to do. I mean, it's just, it's
0: interesting. I mean, it's. it's We're going to take a 60 second break so we can bury some bodies and see what we can do about Mark C.G. Boyer's cough. We'll be right back in 60 seconds with Carrie Drobin on True Crime Uncensored on Outlaw Radio Live. If you want to
2: drink a barbecue rib and a good cigar anytime you want it, get the Outlaw Radio app. It's on Apple and Android free. Just go to your app store and search for
0: Outlaw Radio. Then look for the red highway sign with the bullet holes in it. Download and listen anytime, 24 hours a day. It's all free from
3: the demons of decadence, Magic Matt Allen, and Outlaw Radio.
2: OutlawRadioLive.com
0: Hi, I am the legendary Burl Bear, raised on records, born to rock and roll, rocked on the great rhythm and blues, taking time out of my busy schedule of trying to make my hair look thicker than it actually is. And once I get that accomplished, I think, shall I write today one of my dynamic true crime books, or shall I watch Netflix? Netflix usually wins, which is why you haven't seen a new book from me in several months. But I can tell you all about uh, uh, House of Cars, I can tell you all about the Americans. Glow. I can tell you about all those. So I'll tell you what, to keep me afloat, please buy all my previously published books. <laughs> such as Betrayal in Blue uh, that I wrote with Frank Dorado Jr. and Ken Jurel. Uh, "Mad Overboard, kind of a resurrection Phil Champagne, a taste for murder, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Anything with my name on it is a wise investment because when the economy collapses, Burl Bear's books will be the new American currency. Back to <laughs> True Crime Uncensored with Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. Yes, we are. I've heard of them. Featuring Mark C. G. Boyer, he's still alive over there. His freaking mine, and our guest is Carrie <laughs> Drobin, uh, the woman who rides without laws.
3: <laughs> well, I write without laws. You write
0: without laws. <laughs> have you seen that that new device they have for writers such as I, who are so easily distracted on the internet that we wind up looking at you know red tube all day long <laughs> instead of writing their books? Uh, where it's it's like this little writing machine that kind of looks like a, a typewriter and it's just for writing books and you can't do anything else on it. (laughs) You can't can't play records. Oh,
3: God. I need one of
0: those. Yeah, except it's it's not a typewriter. It's like a little word processor and they call it a writing machine or something. Have you you written with such a... No, no. I try to write and then I go, oh, gee, I just remembered. I'd like to listen to something (laughs) on Spotify.
3: (laughs) Is that the one where it allows you to only write a certain number of words on it? It's kind of got a almost a truncated screen. You can only see a piece of it.
0: Uh, no, that's the one that Apple had out, I think, about 15 years ago. Uh, I remember they had the little tiny strip. We could just yeah, only, Apple writer. Yeah. Yes. Uh, no, this one you can do full-tilt boogie and uh, <laughs> do your chapters and uh, do all your everything. You just can't Full do anything tilt else. Full-tilt boogie. Yeah, that's a writer's wow. expression. No, no, not. no, 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 no. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I can relate to that. It's very hard to to focus sometimes, especially when you're multitasking with
2: you know.
0: Well, I start investigating things like, "Gee, I wonder if I can find out more information on such and such," and then the next thing you know, it's like down the rabbit hole. <laughs> so, Carrie, when you say when you say you're multitasking, what else do you do? Well,
3: I mean, I I have my my day job, which keeps me incredibly busy, and then I've you know, I'm usually researching a piece of whatever book I'm writing at the time um, writing another book in interviewing so it's probably similar to what Earl does with his day and so at the at the end of the day you're just kind of exhausted from you know trying to keep everything straight and you know with all my notepads I'm still very old-fashioned that way and I write things on sticky notes no,
0: oh, yeah, wow. I tried that. It looked like a whirlwind. It looked like a ticker tape parade in my office. Yeah, mine kind of looked. I call it the war room. I mean,
3: uh, for one of my books, the, the Prodigal Father, Pagan Son, almost the entire thing, all of the interviews were done on sticky notes. So I've really progressed a lot. You know, I mean, wow,
0: you can't get very much on there unless you write really tiny.
3: I know, but I think it was sort of the idea of being able to feel like I had made some. In progress or accomplish something
0: because you know, have like, so many notes all over the place. Yeah, yeah. I'll That's tell right, you a trick that I awesome. learned, and you may want to try this one. And you that uh, you think I'm absolutely out of my mind, which is probably more likely, is if you got a a case uh, with a lot of uh, legal stuff going on, like maybe there's been appeals, there's been maybe uh, mistrials, you know, all that stuff. You got stacks and stacks and stacks. Put them all on the floor, open the windows, and then go to bed. When you get up in the morning, all those things will be all over the room, all out of order. Oh, my God. And so what you do then is you start reading them as you pick them up, and you will discover connections between things you never would have noticed if they hadn't all been mixed up.
3: Wow. And none of them fly
2: out the
0: window? Uh, We don't let them do that. It's one of the rules that Uh, I I instruct them before I go, they're not allowed uh, to go out the window. (laughs) No.
1: <laughs> all right, Burrell stands by the window, with yeah, a all night, pictures
3: mask. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh!
0: No, but well, that does—that did—did really uh, to... did work. I did find out some interesting things. That had everything been compartmentalized in the little files, that I never would have.
3: Well, that's an interesting noticed. idea. I might have to try that. Yeah. My only—I uh, guess what I do is I, I tend to disappear for periods at a time. I spent much of writing the last Chicago Boss in the... Uh, in a cabin in the woods, mm-hmm. where I had absolutely no distractions. It was winter time, and I went up there, and you know the roads kind of snowed in. Oh God, in. this is
0: just like misery. <laughs> yes,
3: it was. It reminded me of a little bit of The Shining. <laughs>
0: exactly,
3: it was a very similar
0: thing. Years.
2: I didn't
3: realize I was doing that, but you know that was sort of one way to get rid of the internet and other distractions because there really wasn't any way to connect, you know, to even a phone out there. You're just wow. out there writing.
0: If something horrifying had happened, like the abominable snowman or something, you know, came calling. Or a Yeti. Yeah. Right, yeah.
3: The closest I had was deer coming to, you know, chew at different things by the tree. Uh But yeah, it was a. They go
0: away, deer, I'm making dough. (laughs) (laughs) That don't bump.
3: (laughs) It's a a weird process. For each book, it's been different, but for uh, Last Chicago Boss, it really required that kind of focused concentration to try to get into his head. You know, because yeah, it's obviously written from a first-person point of view, and I had to figure out who he was and what made him tick. And, um, and I had to kind of go into that dark place in order to write that. And so that was my challenge with the book, is to be him and make sure that I got it right, or I was going to wind up in basket number two.
2: This whole,
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this whole chapter I wrote about where he deals with problems. Mm-hmm. And so the problems that can be solved easily go in basket number one. The problems that can be solved uneasily go in basket number two, and they usually require, you know, pulling out the van, mm-hmm. which,
0: uh,
3: all kinds of euphemisms. Well, there's two things
0: it's... you can, or one thing at least you can count on, and that there's there's two kinds of problems that you're going to have: those that solve themselves, and those that will <laughs> patiently wait for you. That's right. So you yeah. needn't have an I'm exaggerated sure sense of urgency. <laughs> They're not going anywhere.
3: Yeah, yeah I just had a sense of, I better get this right, or, you know, I've got the, the wrath of uh, the Godfather on my back, so there was no pressure at all writing it, but yeah. <laughs> I figured it was... Uh,
0: yeah, well, I, I like talking shop with you because, for some, like I said, aside from the shoe size, I find uh, many other similarities. <laughs> I was just going to, I've been working on my current masterpiece, doing the same thing, writing it uh, first person, and then the person informed me they didn't want it first person; they wanted me telling the story. <laughs>
2: so, oh
3: my god!
1: So,
0: well, I can rewrite I this. Um,
3: yeah, that's always the challenge: where, how you're going to do it, what point of view, and how much you're going to include, and in all of that.
1: So, Carrie, um,
0: that's Mark I'm like a,
1: Say, unlike a a, a a a true crime book that Burl might write, where he's got, you know, he's got the people and the crime, and then the trial. Everything's kind of laid out on the the timeline of what happened. How did you go about vetting the stories you're being told for this book? Or did you even bother to try?
3: Yeah, no, that was interesting because, I, you know, I mean, obviously... It's probably true for every book that I write, but more so for for Pete's book because there wasn't a trial. There wasn't anything that I could...
1: Yeah, no corroboration.
3: Yeah, I didn't have the corroboration I needed. I mean, certainly there were some characters that I could corroborate, um, like large guy Sarno um, was a mobster that went to trial, and there were articles on him, and there was, you know, some transcripts available on that, so I was able to piece together some of that. I interviewed a lot of people. I mean, I interviewed Pete, and I interviewed his wife, who had a different perspective. You know, she took it from the being the old lady of and was able to corroborate a lot of the stories that he corroborated. Um, Then I talked to a couple of other characters in the book, you know, just to try to, because when you first start writing a book like this, I don't know at the time that Pete's telling me these stories, which ones are going to become important. Right. And I have no no sense of chronology, no sense of what, you know, what I need next in order to write it. So that's always the the largest problem. And so I decided with with Pete, um, as he was telling the stories, is just sort of to keep it almost like a patchwork. So it was a little bit like Graham style. I could have thrown it on the floor and, you know, let the wind kind of put them in the chron- chronology that they needed to be in. But I ultimately realized what was fascinating about Pete is how this all originated. I mean, he was a college-educated guy, and he had he kind of used the same philosophy that he used when he ran a frat house to run, um, a, basically, to become the CEO of this criminal organization. And so it was an interesting segue into that, you know, how he, everything in his life prepared him to be the boss of the Chicago Outlaws. And so you take somebody that came, that came, I mean, he joined the Outlaws when he was 45. Wow. Which is even, yeah, it's even more crazy. I mean, how do you do that? How do you go from wanting to be this very powerful person, because he had to prospect like everybody else does when they start these, you know, join a biker gang, So how do you take somebody who already believes that he's number one? Um, There's this really great quote in the book, he says, you know, his mom, he really revered his mom and he said his mom taught him from a very early age that if you don't think that you're number one, then nobody else is going to think that either. So he kind of carried that through, that was his mantra throughout life, and so you take somebody like that and he has to start at the bottom. So he starts by forming sort of a prototype of his own club. So he forms his own club, and he becomes, you know, he has some sort of notoriety in his own club. He makes whatever mistakes he can in his own club, but he becomes very well-known, and he aligns himself with leaders in the outlaws Mm -hmm. and with the mob. And that's how he starts to segue. He gets a name, you know, and all these meetings are held in Chinatown in Chicago, and he gets a name, and so he gets known, and he's able to prospect for the outlaws, but in a way that he's almost given a free pass, you know? So he's brought in, but people really like him, they know about him, and they give him almost a free pass to join the outlaws. And he's joined it and he rises to, you know, vice president. I mean, he he rises to positions of power very quickly in there and becomes a boss of his own chapter, almost within like months of being prospected and sponsored into the club. So he's already studied what he wants to be from a a very early
0: age. Why did you have say why he picked a motorcycle gang instead of becoming CEO of, uh, you know, a communications company or a law firm?
3: Well, you know, I did ask him that. And he, you know, he's just an interesting character because he majored in political science. He had colleagues of his that went on to become lawyers and he's still in touch with now. Um, and I think it was the whole allure of being able to be free. I mean, that was his big thing in life. He wanted to do things his way. And so if he joined a corporation, you know, it, it's ironic, actually, because corporation, of course, has all these rules and regulations, and he would have been in the same exact position. Right. And uh, the fraternity, of course, that he was involved with had all these rules and regs, same thing. But I think for him, being the the boss of the outlaws gave him such a uh, profile to actually, I mean, his real ultimate goal was to be the boss of Chicago. Mm. So the Outlaws was really a stepping stone for him to become the boss of Chicago because he became um, leader of uh, It was called the COC, which was the Confederation of Clubs. He wound up uniting 38 clubs in Chicago. I mean, these are all some of them were Outlaw clubs, some of them were just regular um, gangster clubs and he united them. So he did... Obviously
0: a- charismatic, intelligent, great sense of organization, the ability to relate to people of different backgrounds and, and right. to have them follow him.
3: Right. And, and at one point he says you know, if he wasn't going to be the CEO of of the Outlaws he would have been a televangelist. Oh, I mean, that's, that's how he trying to oh, my gosh. A- yeah, I and mean, he was an incredible speaker. I mean, there. Are, he describes, and this is corroborated by a number of people that I, I interviewed, but he describes being able to captivate an audience of hundreds where, you know, he didn't have any notes, and he would talk to them for hours, um, really about minutia. At one point, and, and it's in the book, it's, it's actually one of my favorite chapters. It just cracked me up. But he he's um, invited to speak at this confederation of clubs, which I guess is a big deal. It's a big conglomeration of lots of outlaw Gangs um, go to this, this annual convention, including Hells Angels and Mongols. I mean, everybody's joined in one vicinity, one setting. And he's asked to speak. And before his speech, he has no idea what he's going to say. So he's watching an episode of Star Trek where um, Kirk is talking about, you know, joining the, the Yings and I can't even pronounce the, the other name of it. But, and he, he starts to mimic the speech that Kirk gives. Where it starts, we the people.
1: Ah, uh, so yes. Uh, e. Vladnista.
3: <laughs> yes, Vladnista. Yes. yes. So he stands up in front of the podium and he starts launching into this. It's almost a parody of the Star Trek episode, but the people in the audience are just so you know captivated by his speech. He's almost a cross between, um, I, I forget the guy's name and Being There, but yeah. it's Peter Sellers' character in Being There. He's a cross between that. Where the people don't realize you know that they're being fed a, a bunch of bullshit. and yeah. but you know but Pete had that that ability to really carry an audience, convince an audience, captivate them and and that's really how he rose to power. I mean, people just were so impressed with everything <sighs> he had to say
0: whether whether he was saying anything or not
3: <laughs> right, right, and so I mean that that's the comedy really of. The book, because there, there's a lot of comedy in it, and that's what surprised me when I was writing it—is that how funny he was, and how I mean, he really was a
2: captivating. But
0: as seriously as he took this enterprise, how seriously did he take the enterprise? No pun intended on enterprise.
2: But I mean, <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> I mean
3: well, with... you know, I, I I think he took he took his role seriously. I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make it out to be a, a comedy routine. I mean, he. He definitely took his role as the boss seriously, and he took his position as the, um, you know, running the outlaws and running the confederation of clubs seriously. But I think that he saw a lot of criticism with the way things were, were being done. And that was really his opportunity with this book is to really kind of shed light on that, that the outlaws of today were not the outlaws of yesterday. And so, and that's very similar to how probably gangsters, you know, like the mafia today would say it's,
0: it's not gangster. like the good old days.
3: <laughs> right, exactly.
0: But <When> only you <laughs> only killed your friends, yeah. not strangers. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, is, is this book, is this book <laughs> newly out? September 19th, I believe.
2: Yes. Still that September close. 19th. It just, just, just came out.
3: Just released, yeah, hot off the press. And um, so the yeah, pages think, are still warm. Kind of right, exactly. <laughs> So I think it's generating some good reviews. Um, I think it's different from, you know, any other any outlaw book that you pick up, because it's really, it's kind of, I mean, like I said, it's got a lot of humor in it, and it's got a lot of insight into how not only out, the outlaws worked, but also how the confederation of clubs worked. I mean, that was very much regarded as sort of a, a secret, um, you know confederation where people joined. Nobody really knew what happened inside of Is it. Is Is he
0: letting out some secrets that some people are going to be pissed off about?
3: Um, yeah, I think so. I think so. I think people are going to be... Um, there are going to be some people that are going to be upset with him. Um, I think he was careful, though. I mean, he was careful to kind of toe that line, but you know, I don't think that he actively wanted to hurt anybody with what he was putting out there, and I, I mean, I know that because he took pains to you know, be careful on certain chapters and certain people that, you know, he was basically referencing but not outing.
0: Right. Um, Yeah, you got to be careful sometimes. You know, uh, I mean, just from my own experience, I get fascinated with a particular part of the story that may not be, like, the kernel of the whole story, but, you know, a little sidebar thing that's just fascinating. And then the editor says something like, well, you know... This could destroy this person's life if you, you know, if right. you bring this out as private personal stuff that has nothing really, you know. But like, gee, but it's such a cool story, you know. But you got to. I resp-
3: know. Yeah.
0: yeah you got to, you know, draw the line there.
3: The, yeah, that's always the tough part when you're a writer. Is just, you know, stuff, stuff that will sound great or that, you know, would be a wonderful transition or, you know, is just more ironic because you know there's so much irony in. in Real truth. life. <laughs> yeah, but you have to be careful. And I, so I think, I mean, to Pete's credit, I think he was very mindful of that and, and not wanting to destroy people's lives or hurt people with anything that he wrote about, you know. So I think, you know, that took a bit of massaging towards the, the end to make sure that that didn't happen. So, And That's I think a, he's he's happy with the way the book came out. So I, I don't think he's thinking that anybody's life will be destroyed, but I think as far as what... He had to say about the outlaws and the club itself i think there will be people that will be upset um but i think that what's um what's particularly funny about the book is that you know the charles charles falco in the bago book um he attended a lot of the parties that are referenced and profiled in pete's book mm. so they they overlapped. i mean pete recognized that when when he read the Vagos Mongols and Atlas, he recognized it, and he was so amazed that Charles was able to infiltrate because he didn't, well, obviously didn't realize it at the time. But you know, there's just a funny um, synchronicity that happens with these books. Well,
0: it's kind of like Where show business—a small world, you know.
2: Yeah, it really is.
0: We have discovered that, awesome. that a lot of these criminals that we have on the show all know each other.
2: <laughs> yeah, you
0: know, if not directly, at least by reputation or by some interaction somewhere, you know.
3: Yeah, it's always it's always fascinated me because it's never obviously never on purpose and it just sort of comes about that way. I mean, who knew that the North Side Clubhouse was Pete's clubhouse and that you know this was known? It was actually touted, um, and this came out in the Vago book that this was the clubhouse to attend the party at. You know, it was always over the top. It was always. You know anybody who was anybody went to the Northside Clubhouse. I
0: mean, what kind of stuff went on at these parties? Did they have like you know, uh, like those things that you hit uh, you know on your birthday and the prizes come out? Pinatas. Yeah, they have pinatas? I mean, what 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 goes on there that makes the party so good?
3: Well, just to give you an example, I mean, this is how sort of over the top Pete was. Um, he once ordered, um, he spent seven hundred dollars uh, ordering lobsters for people that attended the party and and I, it was just so crazy, I mean, who who orders lobsters as you know an appetizer or even a main hors d'oeuvre at, at a party like this?
2: Motorcycle so gang party.
3: <laughs> yeah, so he would do this, so he would have lobsters there and he would have Crown Royal which was, you know, an expensive uh, liquor you know, whereas other parties as to my, MD my 2020
0: year, they usually had
3: yeah, so he, he just really he catered it over the top. Um he had anybody who was anybody would come and so he had one of his parties that he described, just to give you an idea, he his um I guess I don't I don't know what you would call him, but his right hand men
2: henchmen. would roll out
3: the yeah, his henchmen would roll out the red carpet and he sat on a throne. He had his own throne. He called it a throne. There's actually a picture of it in the book. he would sit on his throne and people would come to his parties and they would almost line up almost as if he was a celebrity (laughs) and he would (laughs) they would kiss his hand and he would say you know thank you for coming and he described it as after a while there were so many people kissing his hand that he didn't remember which party it was like sometimes it was a Christmas party other times it was a birthday party. You know, where he would say, thank you for the birthday wishes or thank you for the Christmas <laughs> card. And it wasn't the right party. You know, it, was yeah. just, it was almost this. <laughs> and what I learned that was so crazy was um, they actually had meetings where they would discuss running parties so that the clubs were not to interfere with the parties that were thrown at the Northside Clubhouse. So they would have these meetings called run meetings where they would plan their runs. And so if a party was happening Tuesday night, and that was the night of Pete's party, the other club would have to cancel the party because everybody that attended that party wouldn't be able to attend Pete's party. So they would have these, these crazy, like...
0: Oh, it's really like upper-class New York High Society uh, right. scheduling. <laughs>
3: exactly. <laughs> My I mean,
0: debutante ball can't be that night. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it was crazy. I mean, who knew, like, who knew, Right. They would come with their calendars. They would all have scheduling, you know, issues. They would try to reschedule the runs so they didn't interfere with each other. And so that you know, really is
0: funny. Stuff. I mean, you stop and think about it. These are the outlaws. These are the men without rules.
3: <laughs> right? Yes, exactly. I mean, there are more rules in this club than than I've ever seen. I mean, I'm sure it's comparable, but. There was a, there were just a lot of chapters spent on following the rules. You know, at one point it got to the point of ridiculousness where, you know, it was rule number 117 was being broken, and so, yeah, you had to go back through the bylaws and figure out which rule, you know, you, you were allowed to skate on which rule, and it was, it was it was crazy. It was it was really kind of comical, and I think that was sort of where Pete was uh, poking fun a little bit at. At the club, oh you know, yeah, why I mean, it gets crazy, you room?
0: know. I said one time and got in trouble for saying it, but I can't get in trouble here because, hey, I'm the host of the show. <laughs> when thinking out loud, is outlawed. Only outlaws will think out loud. And <clears throat> I said that one time, I the guy I got kicked out of a room on the internet. It so, goes show. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it's I mean, difficult it's, to be... It's like, well, it's like in Seattle when the anarchists got into an argument over who's going to be in charge of the anarchist parade.
3: Great! <laughs> Isn't that insane? I, I mean, mean, after bl- 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 bl-
2: ridiculousness.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's enough to give the Three Stooges a metal hernia. I mean, it's just bizarre. Exactly.
3: It, it really was bizarre. I mean, it really was... Yeah, almost... Really almost comical, the point of that. And I think that's really the point of... You know, I mean, Pete... Pete pokes fun... Throughout the book, at a, a lot of institutions that are very comparable to the outlaw motorcycle clubs. I mean, for example, you know, he becomes a a moose from the Moose Club. You know. Oh,
0: good. I'm glad, you know, glad this right? wasn't a, a you know <laughs> a shapeshifter thing. <laughs> I've only known one shapeshifter in my life, you know, and then, <laughs> that was a woman driving a car, and next thing I know, she turned into a motel. But. <laughs> But that's a different story no, entirely. It's
3: funny, though. I mean, it's funny because he, he was able to poke fun at all of these, these institutions. You know, they have so many rules to them. And, and, you know, just how they kind of overlap and they borrow from each other and, you know, all the way down to law enforcement, which has their own hierarchy of rules. I mean, and that's sort of the, the ridiculousness
0: of it hey, all. I just so, remembered something about you. Actually, not about you, but people talking about you that you may, may or may not know about. And that was uh, the author from England, I'm uh, Steve Miller. Is that his name? Uh, wrote writes the book about outlaws, the outlaws in England, oh. and he's very familiar with your books. And he was on the show a couple years ago as well. And he just thought it'd be a great uh, combination to have the two of you on at the same time, comparing notes between the outlaws in England and the outlaws gangs in America.
3: Oh, funny! I wonder if there is there a difference.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, probably not too much. <laughs> but uh, he's a great investigative journalist, and his books are fascinating. And uh, he was very familiar with your books and very complimentary towards them. So I just thought I'd boost your oh. ego there a little bit. Can't oh, hurt. Can't hurt.
3: <laughs> can't hurt. No, I mean that would be fascinating.
0: Hey, did you get rich off the TV show?
3: I did not. I don't know. I don't. I didn't get rich. No, I still have my day job, obviously, so I'm not rich. <laughs> but. Um, but yeah, that was an interesting experience because, you know, I had nothing to do with that at all. And the interesting—they still
0: wrote you checks. That's that's a great right, deal. They still
3: wrote me checks. Exactly. No, it was wonderful. I mean, I thought they did a really, a really great job, and they followed the book pretty, pretty closely. And I think that Charles actually was a consultant, at least on season one. He may have been a consultant on season two. Now, What was well. the
0: name of the show again for our audience that's not familiar with that?
3: It's uh, Gangland Undercover. It had a. Uh, went into its second season, so it has season one and season two, and um, yeah, I thought they did a really an outstanding job ca- capturing it. They filmed it mostly in Toronto, but they had, um, several of the biker scenes were done in Arizona at Gillespie Dam, so I had an opportunity to go out to the set and watch them do the, the bike stunts, which were incredible. I got to ride in the little, um, not little, it was actually a big camera, where they followed the, the stuntmen mm. down Gillespie Dam, so that was a lot of fun. I, I had a bizarre experience, though, going to the set because, you know, I mean, there was no reason anybody in the world should, should know who I was. You know, they knew Charles. But I get to the set, and Gillespie Dam is really the middle of nowhere. There's, there's just nothing out there, and you, you arrive. There's, like, one gas station and one restaurant. And so I arrive at the restaurant, and the waitress there had all these – she had cookies and sandwiches out for the actors when they came back from filming the bike scene. Mm-hmm. And she she runs up to me and she says, Oh, my gosh, you're in for this special treat. Um, we're filming a television show here. So I felt like a fish out of water. I was sort of sitting in the in the restaurant waiting for some, <laughs> really waiting for Charles to show up so that I had some familiar face, you know, that I could say this is the reason I'm here. I belong here. Because <laughs> it, was, it was really strange. I felt like I didn't belong on my own, you know, the only set <laughs> of my own show. It was, it was bizarre. Yeah. And then I realized halfway through that, I didn't recognize the restaurant scene because it wasn't in the book. Oh, they
0: you know, made so that. The they things. added that.
3: <laughs> they added it in. Yeah. So I mean, I kept rocking my brains, going, "God, where's this restaurant scene?" You know. But that was. <laughs>
0: did that I did I forget adding. that chapter? Well, that's about as exciting as when your editor adds a few paragraphs to your book that you didn't write.
3: <laughs> right. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It was, uh, so it was. It was a. It was a good. Exercising humility, you know, where you just sort of give away the, I'm sure you've had this experience, you know, but you give away the project, you know, I mean, you've written the book, and then the rest is sort of out of your control.
0: Well, that's what, uh, not Effley Bailey, what's his name, the guy who wrote The Last Tycoon and uh, Greg Gatsby, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yeah, F. Fitzgerald. He
2: said, yeah. when you
0: sell something to Hollywood, you go to the California border, you toss the manuscript over, they toss over a suitcase full of money, you put the suitcase in the trunk of your car. And you drive away, and you don't look back.
3: Right, that's so true. I mean, you don't look back. I mean, it's it's been a it's been an interesting ride. You know, I I, I would love to experience it again. But,
0: um, <laughs> yeah.
2: <I'm laughs>
0: so, Carrie, you're you're what about an hour away? So next time you do the show, you'll grab a quick flight come on over join us in the studio yeah would love
2: to I've
0: been trying to get her to do that for about 10 years years. (laughs) well I'm trying to do it now I don't know if you noticed that you think you think you have better luck than me possibly you will she won't be as terrified
3: (laughs) I know yeah hopefully yeah no it's been great and and I appreciate you uh having me back so many times I, I say it's probably because the first time was such a disaster you know
0: you're <laughs> they're yeah, so embedded really in my <laughs> consciousness Did <Does> she, <laughs> she survive yeah. another attack of a truck to get her on know, the air
3: I know yeah just yeah, it was sort of reminding me of a funny occasions where my clients represent themselves and I hadn't oh, relegated God. to the position of advisory counsel. you know so they they what are these
0: psychopaths that you're representing
3: yeah, so they, they take the stand and they, they answer their own questions and they get off the, the witness stand and they go back to the table. You know, <laughs> they, they ask the question and they go back on the stand. I mean, it's a little bit... It reminded me. It's like, me a, like of a
0: Marx Brothers happens. routine. Girl, one more time, yeah, the name, exactly. name of the book and... Uh, oh, what? the name of the book. I think uh, the name of the rose. Oh, the name of the book is... Carrie? The Last the Chicago Boss. The Last, the Last Chicago, Chicago Boss. Available now. Is it hardback, softback? Uh... E book
3: hardback, e book, yeah. Audiobook. Do you do it audio books? Um, it probably will be an audio book. I don't know if it's out yet in audiobook, but it's in every
0: other form. Every other form on the planet. Yes. Buy it, read it, believe it. Now, when you did that first one about the infiltration (laughs) by the ATF, (laughs) you had no idea it was going to lead to a decade-long career of carousing with some of the biggest outlaw motorcycle gang people, humans on the planet, did you?
3: I had no idea that running with the devil was going to set the uh, landscape for that, but... It's been a great ride, and, you know, I'm...
0: they I mean, are like, what do you do next? Interested. It's like <laughs> Kevin Sullivan's done three books on Ted Bundy. I said, we're going to have to find you a new serial killer. You're running out of bodies, oh, you know? <laughs> no. Are there any more motorcycle gangs you could write about? It? We're going to have to find you a new subgenre.
3: I think I might have to find a new subgenre. Yeah, I, I, I know I've sort of struggled with that myself. I mean, each one of the books I've written has taken a different perspective and a different angle. So I've been very fortunate that way. You know, there's not not any repeats. But yeah, I know. I mean, I sort of have to think about when to start back. writing I mean, cozies. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no shortage of people coming out of the woodwork wanting me to write their stories.
0: But oh, people always see, say, oh, you should write my life story. I always say, how does it end? I know, I know. Dizzy stops know. him. What's the moral of the story?
3: Yeah, but what a nice position to be in. So uh, I'm not going to complain. It's very nice to be sought uh, after, you yeah. know, how people want you to write their stories. So I.
0: Yeah, uh, at least we're anyway. still published.
3: That's right. I know. Still published. and
0: still Not pre-published, so but still published after all these years. <laughs> Thank you very much, yeah. Carrie, for taking time out of your action-packed schedule of being wrapped in leather to uh, join us on True Crime Uncensored. <laughs> you you promise things. you come visit Thank us. That's a promise, right? Yeah, you, you will I come. will.
3: It's a promise.
0: Yeah, it's Just promise. any Saturday it's at all, it so doesn't much. matter who the other guest is, you just show up and join us as a co-hostess.
3: Okay. Our little co-hostess I will. cupcake. I will.
0: <laughs> okay. will. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds fair enough.
3: All right. All right, thanks, thanks you again. so
0: much. Hey, thanks. Mark, you feel Bye-bye. any better? Oh, he's asleep now. <laughs> he better be passed away, you know. I, I hope, hope not. I hope not. But if he did, at least he... Did it during the, you know, the Holy Day seasons. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Kerry Drobin. And Keri Drobin. That sounds like one yeah. of the Holy Days. <laughs> Shana Tova, Keri Drobin. All the same thing. after a while. Amen. Amen. I had, uh... challah French toast today. Today? Today I had challah French toast. It's always good. Always good. And I was talking to our friend Pavli Stanimirovic. A punch on the phone while, uh, Barb was cooking. And uh, he said, what are you having? What are you having? I said, challah French toast. He goes, challah French toast? He goes, oh, my God. He says, I've got challah, and I've got an egg.
2: Goodbye.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, he'd had it before. But that's the best, ladies and gentlemen. The best French toast on the planet is challah French toast. When it's fresh. When it's fresh. Yeah. Chopped liver was pretty good Barb me, too. A little salty are we so. done? I don't know. I don't know where Matt is. I think Matt gave up and uh, went to work for a country western station in Pendleton, Oregon. Is there one there? Yeah, hell yes. There is. There's several, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> well, there used to be... God, let me think. There used to be a big country western station there in Pendleton. Yeah. This is a, that was a big deal. Of course, you got the Pendleton Stampede every year. I like the uh, Calgary Stampede. Yeah, it's very similar, because the animals just run rampant. Yeah. <laughs> and They call it Chief Joseph Days. Finally, after like decades and decades, someone said, maybe it would be polite to uh, invite some of the uh, tribal members from Chief Joseph's tribe that were run out of here to, <laughs> you know, to, to, uh, you know and, and invite them back.
2: So did they bother
0: they did. They did invite him back, and they came and went to the sweat lodge and thought it over and said, yeah, we'll come back. And they actually treated him very respectfully, which was nice. Nice change That's a time. good thing, bro. That's a good thing. And if if you've done anything mean to uh, Howard or I or Mark, I suggest that the best time to apologize is this, this week. This is the week. This is the week to apologize. So we will not be back next week with a live show? No, we won't have a live show. We'll run a repeat of something, Matt will either pick one of our greatest hits or he'll just ignore our existence entirely. <laughs> this depends on what we've probably him into. But if you do want to apologize for anything you did mean to us all year long, this is the week to do it because we'll be most prone to accept your apology this week under intense spiritual pressure to be forgiving. That too. It's not always easy. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's Matt right there. On Matt Allen? That's uh, Matt Allen. That's Matt Allen right there. Magic Matt Allen. I think we're ready. I think it's for me to uh, ask you, uh, Burrell. Yeah. What's next? Magic Matt Allen of the Demons of Decadence live in the Lighting Up Lounge right here. Let me give you a a ditty. Oh, oh, he's going to give me a ditty. Ladies and gentlemen, please stand by for the ditty. There's nothing more exciting than having a ditty on the radio. And now, a ditty. Hold on, I
2: gotta
0: get Hold it. on. he's got to find the right ditty. What
2: you doing? Did she hang up
0: on you? No, no, we got done with her and we were just reminiscing about that if you want to beg our forgiveness, <laughs> this is the week to do this it. This is it. This is a Jew week. <laughs> Jew and, week uh... Jew week to forgive. We're thrilled. <laughs> yeah. yeah so. hey, keep, keep in mind on Outlaw Radio today, let's, let's keep it uh, evergreen. You know, if I do uh, say hi to my bagel-biting buddies, it's because I was remiss a couple weeks ago. Are you following me?
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Only because of airtime on terrestrial. Yeah, we know how that is. Oh, here we go. Okay, here we go. Oh! So I'll do it again, okay? Yeah, bro. Yeah. What time is it? <laughs> hey, kids, what time is it? It's time for Magic Matt Allen and the Deepest of Decadence. Live from the the of Lounge. Law Radio Live.